Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Hey, everybody. We got a great one today, you know, for a change, because Norm Ornstein is back. Norm, of course, part of the Al Franken podcast pantheon of great guests. Uh, how many shows has, has Norm done, Peter? I uh, I don't know exactly. Oh, that's right. We don't keep track. No. No. We should. Yeah. Well, if you're a regular listener, you know that Norm is a uh, political scientist and scholar emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute. And on Wednesday, I asked him to talk about the Israel-Hamas war. So uh, like the one I did with Aaron David Miller a couple weeks ago, uh, this is a very uh, sobering one. Uh, it's been about uh, four weeks since Hamas's barbaric attack on Israel, 1,400 slaughtered, 230 or so taken hostage. And that has presented Israel with uh, some very difficult choices. Hamas launched this war knowing that it would bring death and ruin not only to many Israelis, but also to many more of its own innocent civilians. And this is the tragedy of this week and this war. Hamas knew that Israel would have no choice but to retaliate in one of the densest places in the world and bring death uh, to uh, many Hamas fighters, but uh, to far more innocent civilians whom Hamas deliberately embeds itself. There are seemingly no good choices here, and Norm and I discuss uh, the roots of this war and where it may be going. It's a great but very sobering one, you know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, Norm, thank you for, for uh, stepping in on this. This is not a fun day to talk about. We've had some grim ones before. Where we are is that Israel has invaded Gaza and uh, is uh, responding to the October 7th massacres. And it raises all kinds of questions, which is uh, how many people are children and and adults and uh, women are going to be dying in order to take out these Hamas fighters. You're exactly right, Al. And of course, we know a couple of things. One is that the uh, Israeli Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has said this is going to be a long and extended war in Gaza. Much of it now is taking place on the ground. There are troops and tanks. They're uh, apparently moving right next to Gaza City right now. But, you know, you get into urban warfare. And we know that that's horrific. Lots of people die. But we also know that the bombing, intense bombing, is continuing. And we know that the bombing is killing a lot of uh, civilians. And we know that one of the reasons the bombing is killing a lot of civilians is that Hamas has very deliberately put its people inside or underneath critical facilities both densely packed population areas, along with hospitals and schools and the like. And Israel is going after them, and uh, that involves devastating deaths. Is Israel given any choice but to respond? And I I remember uh, at the beginning of this, uh, a number of people, Tom Friedman included, had said, go in with a very limited response, if at all. Other people would reply, well, that is uh, basically saying you can do this and you can do it again. The way to end this is to end this. You know, the, the calls right after the horrific, brutal torture and murder by Hamas of thirteen or 1,400 Israelis, along with taking hundreds captive, um, there were calls for a ceasefire. Imagine if it's there are always analogies that are meaningful or sometimes shaky, but imagine if after 9-11, a bunch of Americans had stood up and said, well, this was terrible, but let's have a ceasefire. We don't need any more uh, military action or bloodshed, how Americans would have responded. Uh, now, that was tough because at that point, it was not a nation state. It was uh, a terrorist group. But we knew that that terrorist group was in Afghanistan. As soon as we could, we hit them. Imagine if after Russia had gone into Ukraine, people had said, you know, let's just have a ceasefire and let them take the territory. Nobody would have said that. So the calls for ceasefire immediately were naive at best. The calls for a limited action, it's not clear to me what a limited action would have done. 
And a part of the reason for that is that Hamas, we know now, has built tunnels 150 feet below ground where they've stored their ammunition and weapons, where they have a lot of their soldiers and where they have their headquarters. Limited action was not going to deal with that. So Israel was faced with a horrible choice, a choice conditioned by what Hamas had done and with a recognition that Hamas wants to have a lot of innocents in Gaza killed because that means a global backlash against Israel. It turns the focus away from Hamas terror to cries of Israeli war crimes. Let me ask you about uh, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, and October 7th, because this was uh, Israel was taken completely by surprise, completely by surprise. Some Israeli leaders later took the blame for it. Netanyahu didn't. It seems like what led up to this for quite a long time is that Netanyahu was kind of playing up to Hamas and basically saying, uh, letting letting Gazans in every day, right, to work and bringing in uh, goods. And on the other hand, the settlers, the right-wing settlers on on the West Bank were going, he was kind of giving them free reign to go after people in the Palestinian Authority. So, you know, there's a lot to unpack there, Al. I mean, one part of this is that this was an astonishing intelligence failure on the part of Israel, akin to the intelligence failure of the United States around Pearl Harbor, but in some ways worse, because Back in 1941, we didn't have a way to easily track what Japanese ships and planes were doing. It was more an assumption that failed. Here, we know that Israel has extraordinarily sophisticated intelligence capabilities and access in Gaza, and yet they failed completely. That's one part of it, and they're going to have to unpack that after this conflict is over whenever that may be. Now, what we also know is, looking more broadly, Bibi Netanyahu has pursued a strategy since he has been in office this time and going back to when he was in office before that, of trying to do everything he can to erase the possibility of a two-state solution and to isolate the Palestinians from the rest of the Arab world as well. Now, he did that internally by basically degrading and undermining whatever leadership the Palestinian Authority had on the West Bank by larding the West Bank with settlements, legal and illegal, by mistreating the population on the West Bank. By, by larding them with settlements of, of uh, Orthodox Jewish settlers. Some Orthodox, others just uh, extremist. Basically, putting them in places which would make, you know, creating a contiguous area for a Palestinian state impossible to pull off, and de facto making the West Bank uh, a part of Greater Israel, which is a basic sin. Which is, if you consider what Israel and Palestine should be, are two states, two democratic states, and that's I 
always thought, what was envisioned. And uh, why why did it go in the direction it did? When did that start? Because I, I always thought that was the aspiration, to have two democratic states. Uh, uh, democracies, yeah. you have a majority of Jews in one, a majority of Palestinians in the other. These are both have ancestral homelands in the region, divided up. <laughs> uh, yeah. Have your holy places uh, in your, you know, there's there are places where they're shared or in great proximity. Not really uh, something that seems like such a stretch of the imagination of what you absolutely have to do in order to create a decent civil society between two different peoples who each have a claim to this land. Yeah. Explain to me. I, I, I don't want you to tell the whole history. <laughs> Actually, but, uh, you know, 30 seconds on 1948, this was the vision and what the United Nations had in mind, that they were going to create a pretty small and narrow strip of land that would be the Jewish homeland. And next to it would be a Palestinian homeland. Now, Palestinians basically didn't like that idea back then. And we saw pretty brutal warfare immediately after the creation of Israel. They wanted the whole uh, enchilada for themselves. We had Palestinians, many of whom left what became Israel, including leaving their homes, and others who were ousted. But it was really Palestinians saying there shouldn't be any Jewish homeland here, period. So that started things off on a wrong foot. Now, with all of that, a large share, the West Bank was not a part of Israel. It was a part of Jordan. And Jordan, along with the other Arab countries, did nothing to move to create or to help encourage a Palestinian homeland. In fact, the Palestinians who made up a very substantial share of Jordan were treated horribly. And other Arab countries, including Lebanon, didn't provide a home for Palestinians. They put them in horrific camps, basically. They were refugees from the beginning. So Israel, but just as much the rest of the Arab world, treated Palestinians like shit from the beginning. So we have that. We also know that at different points along the way, we saw Israeli governments that tried to make for a peaceful transition. We know that Shimon Peres, the longtime uh, Israeli leader, the uh, economic sure. minister, a prime minister at times, his idea was that you'd take the Palestinian area. And remember that the West Bank came under Israeli rule not because Israel invaded the West Bank, but because the rest of the Arab world attacked Israel in an unprovoked war, and Israel prevailed taking that territory. But what Shimon Peres wanted to do was to open it up to economic prosperity, believing that once you had that prosperity, Palestinians would want to live peacefully and have really good lives. We know that we had multiple efforts to try and bring about peace in the Middle East and help to establish the Palestinians by Jimmy Carter, by Bill Clinton when he brought Ehud Barak and Yasser Arafat together at Camp David. Sure. 
Barack made an astonishingly generous effort to create a Palestinian homeland that Arafat, without any backing uh, to help create this from Egypt or Saudi Arabia, rejected. We know that Ehud Olmert, who was prime minister for a while, also tried to do the same thing. That didn't work. Now, there's another element here that I think changed Israeli public opinion and helped to lead us to the right-wing government that we have today. Israel, after these wars, also had occupied Gaza. Not a good thing and did not work well at all. And finally, under a conservative or right-wing government, decided that they would pull out of Gaza and leave it to the Palestinians. In effect, creating, albeit small, densely populated, and without an ability to actually have control over its airways uh, or seas, Gaza, an independent place, and did it at great cost. They pulled out Israelis who had been living in Gaza, many of them settlers who were dragged kicking and screaming, uh, basically out of what had become their homes. And the expectation was, okay, now they can govern themselves. Immediately, we began to see rockets sent over into Israel, attempts to do terror attacks. That was when the Palestinian Authority governed and it was corrupt and didn't do anything for the Gazans who lived there. They were basically ousted with some bloodshed by uh, Hamas, which also promised that they would govern with honesty. But basically, without any elections over the last almost 25 years, I guess 20 years, have basically done nothing for the people of Gaza. They've taken the resources that have been there and used it to try and eradicate Israel uh, and commit terror. The people of Gaza have been mistreated by everybody, but they're the ones put into the firing line by uh, Hamas. That is absolutely deliberate. That is part of their strategy, which is to embed uh, civilians with 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 their military. That's why we're seeing so many fatalities and and injuries among the Gazans. And, you know, we have to be brutally frank here that Hamas wants a lot of deaths of its own people because the long-term goal is to eliminate Israel. The immediate term is to turn the world against Israel to have them look past Hamas's atrocities and blame Israel. So we see a number of things happening. One, they tried to prevent people in the northern part of Gaza, where most of the bombing was going to take place, to leave. They wanted them there. They have kept doctors, nurses, and ambulatory patients in hospitals underneath which they have a lot of their headquarters and munitions. Now, are, are, the, are the Israelis bombing those places? They are bombing some of them. And we know that there was a major Hamas headquarters, 150 feet underground, where at least the Israelis say uh, all of these atrocities of October 7th were planned underneath a very densely populated area that's called a camp, but it was really a residential area that Israel just bombed. And it caused a lot of deaths. There's no question. They bombed it a second time. 
They were trying to get 150 feet underground. So, so what, what is the purpose of this? I mean, obviously, it's to make Israel a pariah yeah. in the uh, Arab world and the Muslim world. It's not just in the Arab world. It is, we're seeing the Secretary General of the United Nations basically downplay Hamas's atrocities to go after Israel for what it's doing. We're seeing this reaction in a lot of places. It's not just the Arab world that they're after. So let me ask you this, Norm. Is Netanyahu playing into their hands because he's sort of backed into a situation where Israelis are pointing to him and saying, you let this happen? There is no doubt that there will be a reckoning for Netanyahu. It's first that he he pursued a strategy of trying to discredit the Palestinians in the West Bank by cozying up to Hamas in Gaza, which obviously backfired against him. And a part of the reason that Israeli intelligence failed was a belief or an assumption that they they were in a kind of tacit understanding with Netanyahu. At the same time, we know another who, who was playing playing Hamas against, against uh, the Palestinian the authority, right, and being played by Hamas completely. Yes, we also know that uh, another trigger for all of this was that the Abraham Accords which Israel and uh, the Trump administration had engineered to have normal relations with a number of the Arab countries that had previously also called for Israel's devastation, was being joined by an attempt to get an agreement with the big kahuna, the Saudis, that also would have basically undermined the Palestinians' ability to have any kind of independence and that was sort of Netanyahu's kind of big play. That was it. If he could get the Saudis, then he wouldn't have to get a Palestinian yes. state. He, he, he'd be able to do that without getting a Palestinian state. To, to win over the Saudis would be a huge victory. And, you know, to be fair, the negotiations over an accord between Saudi Arabia and Israel were being brokered by the Biden administration. And at least the hope there was that to make that deal, Netanyahu would have to make some concessions to the Palestinians. But from the Palestinian perspective, once there was a normal relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel, it wasn't going to go away and they'd be screwed in any case. And I think Hamas saw this as an opening where they could take that off the table, but also rally a good part of the world in their favor. We're going to take a, a quick break. We'll be right back with Norm Ornstein. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself. 
at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Can I ask you a question, which is about the demographics of Israel? And it's slow lurch, but lurch to the right. It's It seems that that Israel was a labor party, that it was a a liberal state, and that gradually, gradually, and then uh, suddenly it was taken over by very right-wing forces, people who were, you know, anti-Muslim, anti-Arab, and who were killing the people in in the West Bank. Did that gradually happen, or is that... I I would think you could say it gradually happened, and there are a few factors here. One is another element of all of this, which is that the Arab world, the rest of the Arab world, in the aftermath of the creation of Israel, but for a couple of decades that followed, basically expelled the Jews living in their countries. And these are Sephardic Jews uh, from places, you know, ranging from Morocco to sure. uh, uh, Sephardic, not Ashkenazi, right. not European. And they were, you know, having been thrown out of their homelands, including uh, from Iran and other places where they had been for millennia, they were not exactly feeling warmth towards Palestinians themselves. The same was true of the Russian Jews who left the Soviet Union who were more conservative in their viewpoint too. But then you have the other factor that you're really alluding to, Al, which is the growth and explosion in population of the ultra-Orthodox communities who have six, eight, 10, or 12 kids, while the Ashkenazi Jews- Just a demographic fact of having more and more, having that many kids. So they're growing in numbers while the rest of the population, and especially the not particularly religious population, you know, they have one or two kids. But it's also an Israeli political system that has an exaggerated form of proportional representation. So if you have a fairly evenly contested political system, then small parties that easily gain some representation in the Knesset, uh, the legislature, have a lot of leverage. And for a long time, those religious parties held the balance of power. And so they could tilt the system in their favor. That meant that they would get a lot of money going to their religious schools, money going for welfare for uh, the men uh, and families who would spend their time studying the Talmud and not uh, working. 
um, uh, in uh, a capacity where they would pay taxes. So this is something I want my audience to, under, to understand, that Orthodox Jewish men, some are paid to study. Yeah. And they cannot be in the military if they choose, right? Yes. And the last government actually pushed some of them to go into the military, but that's now over with. Let's put Bibi to the side for now. The fact is that Israel was going to have a crisis down the road. Let's say that we hadn't had this horrific set of events. Let's say that we didn't have any kind of a war or more than you know very low-level clashes for a significant period of time. Israel was headed in a direction where a smaller share of the population would be the ones generating the economic growth and uh, the GDP in the country, paying the taxes and serving in the military, while a growing sense of the population were not paying taxes, not serving in the military, and basically living off the blood, sweat, and tears of the rest of the population. And that was going to make Israel not only more divided, because increasingly you were going to see resentment on the part of those who were sacrificing against those who were not, but we were also going to have a national security crisis, because at some point they were not going to have the manpower and woman power to keep up their defenses. Now, I think you can add to that, Al, that what we're going to see now in the aftermath of what's happened, and especially with what Netanyahu has tried to do to turn the country into more of an authoritarian state, undermining the judiciary and empowering mm -hmm. uh, a bunch of thugs, we are already beginning to see businesses and some of the uh, uh, non-religious uh, part of the country deciding to leave moving their businesses more uh, to other countries, deciding that this was just uh, incompatible with their values. We're going to see an acceleration of that, I got to believe, after this horrific war is over. And that's going to make that problem a bigger one down the road. Unless there's a change in the Israeli political system, and it would have to come fairly soon before the ultra-religious component gets big enough and menacing enough that, uh, you know, they could lead to some kind of even civil uh, strife. Is, is the more liberal, more secular side of, of Israel reacting to this in a way that says this, this has got to change and yeah. we've got to change it now? And is there a political movement to do that? Because looking at what, what has happened here is uh, Bibi favoring Hamas over the Palestinian Authority, uh, him favoring the settlers, the Orthodox were right-wing settlers, over other Israelis, and then seeing this horrific atrocity occur because the, the, their eye was off the ball and also doing the thing with the Supreme Court. Is there a massive political movement to not just get rid of this guy, but to change the system. Yeah, well, we know that before these horrors, when uh, the political system under Bibi was moving in a more authoritarian direction, 
there were massive demonstrations almost every single day, a huge share of the Israeli population going out and protesting what he was doing. So that momentum was was building before this happened. Momentum was building before this happened, although we have to keep in mind that, you know, it's a parliamentary system. He still had a majority support in the Knesset. But we were, you know, heading towards a genuine crisis and we were seeing capital and people flee in ways that was going to hurt the country significantly. Whether that would have tempered the move towards a kind of judicial reform that would have destroyed the independent judiciary and the fundamental values of the country, it's not clear. But the momentum was building. I think it's going to build more now. Well, with the shock, this is a shock. It's a shock. And I think even some on the right are going to understand, we're already, I think, seeing some evidence of this, how much culpability there is for Bibi and his government in this. You know, he did a tweet basically blaming the intelligence leaders and uh, not himself, and then was forced under fierce pressure from some of his allies to take that down and apologize. There's a real understanding that Bibi is culpable here. And I I think it's not clear how they can do this, whether they can force another election, whether some of his uh, members of the Knesset who were a part of his coalition decide to do a motion of no confidence or how it would work. But I got to believe the pressure to get him out of there is going to be very, very substantial unless somehow he navigates through this to some kind of very, very unlikely positive outcome. And what I'm afraid of is that is dictating how he's conducting this war, his own political survival, as opposed to what's best for not just the people of Israel, but the people of Gaza and people for the region. Let's talk about the rest of the region, which is, you know, uh, Iran and Lebanon with Hezbollah and Syria with Hezbollah. And what are we seeing in terms of, we we have the carrier groups there in case anything starts to erupt or to prevent something from erupting. Are we seeing the Arab street roiled? And are we seeing uh, Mu's in the uh, Arab street to go to war? Well, there's no doubt that, especially when we had devastation outside a major hospital and the immediate reaction from Hamas was that it was an Israeli missile and uh, there were hundreds and hundreds of deaths, that it brought outrage to the Arab streets and put a lot of pressure on other Arab governments. It was only later that we saw pretty substantial evidence that this had come from a Islamic Jihad, another one of the terror organizations in Gaza. Social media and that yeah. th- that's part of the terrain of, of war now. Yeah. Now, I you know, getting to the larger question, the larger nightmare here is that we end up with a vast regional war that could actually turn into something even more global. And that would be uh, driven by Iran, because Iran has fundamentally financed Hamas and given it a lot of its weaponry and the sophisticated weaponry that it has, the training of its soldiers. Uh, Undoubtedly, even if it didn't uh, order this or trigger it, uh, had a lot to do with what Hamas was able to accomplish on October 7th. Hezbollah is also an Iranian proxy. The Houthis in Yemen are an Iranian proxy, and they've been sending cruder missiles over into this. And we can't ignore the possibility that Russia's playing a role here because all of this works to Russia's advantage. 
It takes attention away from Ukraine and potentially means that a lot of weaponry that might otherwise go to Ukraine from the United States is going to end up with Israel. So what could happen? We know that there has been a sort of low-level war going on in the north of Israel with Lebanon, with Hezbollah, sending in missiles, although not their most sophisticated ones, which actually could go all the way to Tel Aviv, Haifa, Jerusalem, and cause tens of thousands of deaths or more, or some of their many, many thousands of trained forces. They're sending in little groups here and there, kind of probing stuff. We know that Syria, another proxy of Iran and Russia, is sending in some missiles. Uh, these are you know, minor things compared to what's been going on in the South. But if they turn into something more major, if we see a full-fledged attack from Hezbollah, which is far more devastating capability than Hamas does, and it turns into a full-scale war, and I think they have something like 70,000 troops there that they could deploy along with thousands of missiles. If we see more action from Iranian directions, I think Israel is going to turn to Iran and do some kind of an attack on Iran. And depending on how serious all this got, if we saw, for example, tens or hundreds of thousands of Israelis killed with missile attacks from Hezbollah, Israel is not just going to basically level Beirut. They're going to go after uh, Tehran. And that could be something unspeakable. Okay. Well, um, yeah, thanks a lot. Now let's turn to something more more positive, like the House of Representatives. Well, you know what? I was going to talk about the House, but uh, it just seems like anticlimactic. I mean, yeah. one, of, one of the things they're, they're talking about is funding Israel, Israel funding and taking it away from the IRS, which is something that just is annoying to me because this extra funding for the IRS is actually has been scored by the Congressional Budget Office to vastly increase revenues because you have more auditors. And Mike Johnson would actually cut revenues for uh, net revenues for our government in order to, quote, pay for Israel. So this is how cynical they are, which is the ongoing travesties of our our politics. But it's... um, it, it pales in comparison to the, this awfulness that we're seeing uh, escalate, maybe, and hopefully not. But is there a way, is there a way that Israel finishes what it does in Gaza and then some other occupying force comes in and administers it? I mean, that is hard to see, but is that a plan? It's not clear, first of all, that at this point, Israel or anybody else has a plan for what happens when the fighting ends. But we know that there are ideas out there. Dennis Ross, our longtime uh, negotiator for Middle East peace and foreign policy expert through multiple administrations, Democratic and Republican, has said that we need to find a new way to uh, have appropriate governance in Gaza. Hopefully we will uh, see an end to this, but I don't know how long that will take. Yeah. And uh, I don't 
think uh, anybody does. So, Norm, thank you for bringing up to date where we are now. I see this lasting a long time, and I unfortunately see the likelihood of it, of it getting uh, much worse before it gets better. But I also yeah. have this hope that this will finally, finally convince parties in, in Israel that the only solution is the solution that we've always, that's always been the only solution, which is a two-state solution. Yep. Is, and that is the hope that out of this disaster, that's what happens. I couldn't agree more. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.